Hey, nurses. Welcome to the Nurse Dot Podcast, giving nurses validation, resources, and hope one episode at a time. Today on Nurse Dot Podcast. So important to not like throw the baby out with bathwater on this kind of thing, because, you know, as we've been talking about anesthesia versus mental health treatment versus abuse, those are all three very, very different scenarios in terms of how it's absorbed, how it's administered, right? They're like, they're all very different. Understanding the like subtlety of those differences is, is so important. Amidst the controversial debates and recent headlines about ketamine, highlighted by the tragic passing of Matthew Perry, we welcome Dr. Sandhya Prashad to our show. As a board-certified psychiatrist acclaimed for her work with interventional treatments for challenging disorders, Dr. Prashad brings a wealth of knowledge and an informed perspective on the nuances of ketamine therapy. I'm your host, Kara Lunsford, registered nurse and VP of Community at Nurse.com. So, Sanya Prashad, Dr. Sanya Prashad, I'm really thrilled that you joined me on this podcast. And I had the privilege of being able to meet you in person not too long ago in Texas, in Austin, Texas, where their motto is uh, keep Austin weird. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, but I'm going to have you introduce yourself because the reason I asked you to come on this podcast with me, we had talked about this before. We wanted to do this podcast together and we were going to talk about ketamine and ketamine therapy. And we we're going to talk about all the cool things. And then ketamine made the news. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So we're like, oh, what better time than now to talk about stuff that has made its way into the news and the general public is now talking about ketamine um, on a rather regular basis. So that being said, would you give me a little intro as to who you are and, you know, how you got into this, this area of medicine? Yeah. So, you know, so I'm Sandhya and I'm a board certified psychiatrist in Houston. I'm in private practice and I started my practice in 2011, but then in, and I was doing just um, med management, right? So typical traditional psychiatry, primarily kind of some of the similar things, um, treatment resistant depression and anxiety disorders, that kind of stuff. And I actually had a patient that became quite depressed and suicidal. And I had sent him to the hospital. And when he came out, he was, he was even worse. And it was one of those where, you know, in your bones as that this is somebody who's motivated. And I was like, we have to do something more. And I had started hearing about Kevin's anti-suicidal effects. And so that started my journey to kind of learn about it. I even tried to refer this guy to somebody in town Nobody called me back. Um, and he was like, you do it. I was like, well, I've got to learn how to do it. So I actually reached out to an anesthesiologist in Boston. And she graciously said, fly up and I'll teach you. So I went up and she trained me. And then I started going to some conferences, met some other people. And that sort of started my journey on this. So I came back, built out an office that catered more to to doing those treatments. Because well, we can talk about this later, but the environment in which it's given is really important. Um, and the setting and staffing and stuff. And so I built it out and then it kind of took on a, a mind of its own. And at one of those meetings, I, I met some other doctors who were doing the treatment. And that's how we started the American Society Academy of Physicians at that time. And so now I'm the current president. Um, and that was back in 2016. So I've been using this treatment in my practice since then. Wow. And, and my practice has now evolved into all treatment-resistant depression and what they now call interventional psychiatry. So I do intravenous ketamine, um, but there's also an intranasal version that's FDA-approved called Spravato. We do that in the office. And that one has insurance coverage, so it's a lot more accessible and affordable to a lot of patients. We have therapists that do ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, and a lot of times we'll use intramuscular ketamine for that. 
And then I also do TMS treatment and, and then, you know, some med management, things like that. So that's how my practice has evolved over the past couple of years. That's amazing. I did not really realize how long ketamine had kind of been around and how long ago people started using it for treatment-resistant depression and, and anxiety. I, you know, personally, just uh, totally candidly, went through a whole series of ketamine treatment myself. Mm-hmm. And I did that back in 2019. Mainly, I was experiencing um, a lot of PTSD from my work as a nurse, actually, and some of the the trauma and the things that I had experienced. And I was having really dark thoughts and realized this is this is scary. I scared myself actually with my with my own thoughts. So I had thought back actually to a time where I had a patient who I had taken into the hospital and they had given her ketamine, but it was actually for pain. But this patient actually had a lot of uh, experiences with depression and anxiety and some stuff like that. But after having like just received some ketamine for pain, I remember walking into her room and she looked at me and just said, oh my gosh, I feel so well. Look at me walking around. Do you see? She's like, I, I think that this is what happiness feels like. That's, and I, I couldn't believe it. And so when I found myself in this situation in, in 2019, I remembered her saying that. I actually remembered her saying, I, I think that this is what happiness feels like. So I thought maybe there's an option here for me. And so I started looking into it and I found the Ketamine Clinic of Los Angeles and Dr. Mandel. And so I went there and I did the whole, the whole experience. And after the very first infusion, and I, I'm not saying that this is true for every person, but for me, after the very first infusion, I felt hope. That's what I felt. I felt like, a, like there was a light at the end of the tunnel uh, I think oftentimes suicide or suicidal ideation, it, it's preceded by that element of feeling like a lack of hope. Right. And so immediately after the first infusion, that's what I felt. I felt hope. And then I was like, oh, I don't, I don't feel like I, I, that that's my only recourse. <laughs> and that is the experience of a lot of people who have kind of you know, dark thoughts or suicidal thoughts that almost immediately, a lot of times those will get better. And so I'll go ahead and say it now. One of my takeaways always when I do a presentation is remember one thing that I say today, it's that this could save someone's life. If you know a patient that is struggling with acute suicidality, ketamine can save their life because it can often stop those suicidal thoughts right away. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we don't have a lot in psychiatry that, that works quickly like that, that offers such immediate relief. It's, that's so true. And it, it is what ended up making me very passionate and what made me so interested in and in wanting to be able to provide that kind of treatment as a nurse, which is something that we'll talk about in this podcast as well, is just the opportunities that are out there for nurses who are looking to be able to work with physicians like yourself, uh, working for practices where maybe this is something that you're really interested in, or you want to be able to provide this type of treatment. Because I will say that as a nurse, it has been probably one of the greatest opportunities for me to be able to provide something that has that kind of result because it's very satisfying as a practitioner. Exactly. Right. Right. I mean, we talked about this some in Austin, right? That especially post-COVID and just with like burnout, like how just a lot of nurses and probably just providers in general find that doing work like this feels very rewarding and helps them with that burnout in a way, right? And so... You know, I know a lot of clinics use some nurses that kind of do a couple different jobs. So they might work in an ER setting, but then they work in a ketamine clinic a couple days a week. And, and they it, they find that it helps them find a better balance, you know. Yes, because sometimes you don't want to pick up that extra shift, right? Like sometimes you want to work 
two or three days at the hospital and you're you're doing that type of nursing and you want to moonlight somewhere where it it almost doesn't feel like work. Honestly, I feel like when I'm able to provide these types of therapies for people and I'm able to hold space for them while they're in that journey and I'm able to help integrate them a little bit coming out of that journey. So helping them get in and also holding space while they're there and then helping integrate them out uh, is just such an incredibly rewarding experience. And I think it really is what nurses went into nursing to be able to do. Absolutely. I mean, I would say the same for, for a lot of doctors, right? I think one of the reasons people are drawn to this is people get better. And that's what we want, right? We want as providers as, and nurses and everybody in healthcare, we want to see our patients get better. I'm, I'm excited that we're doing this podcast because there's not a whole lot that I think has been um, out there in terms of specific education, just, you know, with, for nurses. But there's such an important part of the treatment team with this because they are often the ones providing support and holding space and that is, that's very, very important during this treatment, that the patients yeah. feel comfortable and that they have that support team. Exactly. I, I mean, that's, we, nurses, we signed up to do the, the educating, you know, the, the, the bedside education, the bedside. Yeah. To really, truly be at the bedside. And when you have the opportunity to do these ketamine infusions, and it depends on what type of clinic you're working in. And, um, there's clinics where they require you to sit in the room and have one-on-one -on -one monitoring the whole time. Then there's other clinics where that's not exactly the case, where it's almost like circulating, <laughs> circulating nurses, where they've got several people that are all receiving infusions at the same time. And maybe you're checking in on them, but you're not necessarily staying in the room the whole time. So there's variety of different models. And I don't necessarily feel that there's one right way. I do think that there's, uh, I've, I've experienced a couple of different ways. And my preference personally is when I get to have some level of say in the type of music that I'm listening to yes. or the environment, the chair, the blanket. If I want to be able to bring somebody who does energetic work, I want to be able to bring somebody who does that kind of energetic work. Um, so I like to have a little bit of autonomy over. And you're bringing up a things. great point that this is so specific to each individual person. So also finding what works for that person. So we may have a way that we do it for the majority of people, but somebody might say, hey, you know, I've had ketamine before at this other clinic. This is how I used to do it. And I'm like, I'm open to how you used to do it. I, I just um, yep. did a consult a few days ago with a patient who says that the clinic she was going to, it shut down, but she was using VR to do like positive affirmations kind of like during and would I be open to letting her do that? I was like, sure, if that's what works for you and you've been doing it. Absolutely. Wow. I'm trying to actually picture how that works because, you know, normally we, we cover our eyes and we don't open them because there's a little bit of visual disturbance. And again, th now this goes into how the experience is really different at different doses. So maybe she wasn't getting a particularly high dose at the other clinic. Yes. And this is where, you know, ketamine has this art to it, in my opinion, like with the dosing. And that's why sometimes we do you know low dose with like im and patients do therapy during it and they can they're a bit more conversational versus you know iv and a higher dose iv where they are more introspective just kind of focusing on music and you know but i think again being able to be flexible enough for the patient but that's why this is um this is such like high touch work, right? Like you really do have to like know the patients, know what they like. You know, my staff, my nurses, they they know like what kind of room each patient likes. You know, this person likes the room that's dark and this person likes the room that has a bit more light. And, you yeah. know, and so there is a lot of um, just like personal touch that's really, really important for this. And isn't that where we're going anyway, or at least where I think where we want to be going anywhere is like personalized medicine, right? That's really where the art of medicine comes in. 
And I, I think that sometimes that's where it can make certain pr- practitioners a little uncomfortable, right? Because there's certain practitioners or prescribers that want they they want an exact dose, right? They want to know this is exactly how I give ketamine. This is how long I give it for. This is how I titrate it. This is the bolus I give. This is the, and they don't want to deviate. You know, they, it's, it's like, just tell me what I'm supposed to do and I'm going to do that. And that's all I'm going to do. And it's not to say that a patient can't get some benefit from something like that. I mean, I think that it's a little cookie cutter, but will they get some benefit? Probably. Probably something, you know. Will we maximize the benefit? Maybe not. Maybe not. But yes. part, that's part of what I like about this, though. I think I like that it's not algorithmic, right? Mm-hmm. That I get to do that part. I get to kind of figure out what are the things that I need to adjust to get this to work really well for this patient. And because all the patients I see are technically treatment resistant, like they've had treatment before, they... I always think of it as kind of like a puzzle. So what are all the pieces? So I, a lot of times will be looking at labs and thyroid and like making sure their meds are right and how's their sleep and are they exercising and just all those pieces. And then do we have their ketamine right? You know, are they prepared for their ketamine? Like, are they in the right headspace when they're getting it? You know, all those things. Hey there, nurses and nursing students. We know your job isn't just a profession. It's a calling. Now, with Nurse.com, your nurse life is all in one place. Imagine a world where career opportunities are tailored to your skills, where you can find peer support in the Nurse.com app, the only networking site built specifically for nurses. Continuing education, events, peer support, and jobs? What more can you ask for? Ready to take the leap into a role that is truly yours? Check out nurse.com forward slash jobs today. Well, this this is a, a very nice segue into the safety profile of ketamine. So one of the reasons why I think that we can feel very comfortable about not being very algorithmic or about how it's being given um, or very prescribed in not the traditional prescribed word, but like not being so boxed in to how we give it is because it actually has a pretty good safety profile. Absolutely. So I think a couple of things come to mind when we talk about this. One is how we use it for you know, in this case, mood, I'm going to just say, because I'm a psychiatrist, I won't talk much about pain, but if we're talking about mood, most of those studies were done at half a milligram per kilo over 40 minutes. It's again, it's common practice for people to adjust somewhat within giving that anywhere from like up to maybe 60 minutes and then adjusting the dose upward depending on the patient. So that's really, really common practice, but that's still a really, really tiny dose, um, even compared to ketamine anesthesia which tends to be more like five milligrams per mil, you know, IV push kind of given all at once. And so one, it's, it's a very controlled dosing. So they're getting a very small amount. Um, at those kind of doses, you don't have respiratory suppression. So that's the first piece that also makes it, I think, very, very safe. But the therapeutic window is just very, very large with ketamine. Um, so yes, that is one of the reasons why, you know, outpatient setting is a safe way to administer it. The nasal form of ketamine, bravado, which you still get um, decent blood levels of ketamine, you know, the monitoring that's recommended for that, and that's an FDA approved product, is pretty minimal. It's really blood pressures primarily. Um, they recently added, you know, getting like a pulse ox um, at the beginning and end kind of, but for the most part, it's very, very, very safe. A patient selection is important with this kind of stuff also. I mean, obviously, but for most patients, this is going to be a very, you know, safe kind of drug. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned pretty briefly, like just so that everyone can understand the the levels that are given in anesthesia are much, much higher. I think you mentioned like five milligrams per kilo. 
Right. Yeah. So five milligrams per kilo. So that is a hefty number comparatively to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of weight. Over 40 minutes. Over 40 minutes. Right. Not just like IV push. Right. Yeah. And that's that's like if someone's going to um, set a bone... in the ER right. or they're going to do something where they might give a big whopping dose, but give it under a very quick push just to kind of knock someone out temporarily. The half-life is also very short. Exactly. So coming back out of it is pretty quick. So the minute the infusion stops running, you know, within 10 to 15 minutes, you're really fully awake and exactly and And that's the thing you know so when patients ask about that like they're nervous i'm like there's a lot of control that i have over the process right i use a syringe pump fine board tubing and at any point i could stop the infusion and like you said it'll wear off pretty quickly like once you know patient comes into the office and they get a treatment within 15 20 minutes of it being over they're ready to get up, go to the restroom, walk around. You know, they're pretty conversational. It it does wear off pretty quickly. Yeah. We joke and say that you might feel like you're on a boat, but mentally you feel like you're completely back to where you you were usually prior to to sitting down in the chair, but hopefully better, (laughs) better than how you felt before you sat down in the chair. Joining us for today's DotSpot is Jenny Fennell. Jenny is the CEO and founder at TeachRN. She's also a CRNA herself and founder of the CRNA School Prep Academy. You have to be very considerate of the right dose for the right patient. You have to look at the whole picture. What are they having done? What are their needs? And really only give what you have to give to get them through what they need. Academy is no different. So infusions, you do the the minimal dose you need to get the maximal effectiveness for what you're trying to achieve. I think it has a place, but yeah, I think it just needs to be given and titrated appropriately to that patient's needs. I mean, it really should be seen as a medical necessity. And I also think because of what we're treating, just like all these mental diseases, there's a stigma to it. And equally, since it is kind of a controlled substance, there's more of a stigma from a public standpoint. They probably see, oh my gosh, ketamine, I, I heard it's an opioid. You know, they don't, they don't know exactly what it is, they just know it's a pain medicine. Is ketamine available on the streets? Yes, people are taking it recreationally. Now, that's not recommended. And I think we've seen a lot of things like Mind Bloom, for example. Do you want to talk a little bit about Mind Bloom? Yeah. Um, so, you know, just to give a little background for people who may not know, I guess. So, Mind Bloom. Um, so, during, let me back up a bit. During COVID, they changed some rules about how you could prescribe controlled substances to patients. So, it used to be, You had to see the patient in person at least once before you could prescribe a controlled substance. And that changed during COVID. And that's why they had, you probably remember the telehealth companies that were doing um, like Adderall and sending scripts to people. So they have started companies that are telehealth for oral ketamine at home. Um, You know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot there. Um, You know, they have some of their own kind of guardrails in place to try to monitor. But again, it's all kind of remote. And, you know, they are sending some pretty high doses to patients. And I think for me... um, These are like in a lozenge, like a lozenge form. Yes, it's kind Um, of like a cough drop. And um, so the bioavailability of a lozenge is much lower than when we do IV. But they are sending pretty high doses that can get levels higher than maybe even what we would do for an IV. Because the bioavailability of oral is not great, a lot of people end up needing to be dosed pretty frequently with it. And that kind of frequent dosing, we don't have long-term data on. So, um, you know, there's... And then, so what I was going to say is that, like, I, I, I go through a pretty lengthy process to 
um, determine appropriateness for patients before they ever get treated, and then just educating patients about what it's going to be like, and then also really hand-holding through that first infusion a bit to, I always say I have to teach you how to do ketamine. Um, and so, you know, with the home piece, you know, they're not, they're not getting that. And then the question comes up with, are they taking it as prescribed? Is it being diverted? Right. There's, there's a lot of that. Um, and when we talk about appropriateness, you know, patients who might be actively psychotic, you know, those are not really appropriate patients, um, for ketamine. They can, you know, be worse with that. Yeah. And not necessarily to to name names. There's other companies. Yeah, we're not trashing Mind Bloom, but like we're just saying, like that was a pretty common one that people were seeing, like on Facebook and and all this stuff. And and I, I and I think it's important that people. So I think people see that and they think it's the same as IV infusion, but it's not, right? So bioavailability is much much lower. You're just not going to see the same kind of response. And so I think one issue with it is that some people feel like, oh, I've tried ketamine. And I'm like, no, you haven't really tried ketamine. Yes, yes. I also think that there's kind of that interesting uh, sweet spot in a way. You almost, to me, in a lot of ways, like you don't want to be hanging around in that middle space of ketamine. That's not always like a fun, to me, that's not really a fun place to be. I kind of like either want to fully be in that journey and in that place, but I don't really like the purgatory. (laughs) Like I don't want to be hanging out in the middle. My understanding is that Oral gives you a lot of that purgatory because it because of the way it's um, metabolized, right? So it kind of hangs out for a long time afterwards, and yes. people sort of feel, yeah, yes. And I've also like, from what I've understood, and correct me if I'm wrong, but usually when you're when you're getting these orals, they want you to put it under your tongue. They don't really want you to swallow because of first pass metabolism and and all of that. You're supposed to kind of swish it, keep it under your tongue so that you can kind of have it absorbed uh, like- in Like sublingually. Mucos- sublingually, like the mucosal. And, and then you spit it out. Also, you don't really want it activating later on. Like you don't want to kind of have like these delayed, I have heard a little bit if people swallow it, that they've had kind of these strangely delayed reactions also. It kind of lingers on, like, yeah. Yeah, you don't want to be driving <laughs> and suddenly go, oh, I feel a little weird, right? So that's that's another, for me personally, I like the predictability of the IV medication. Uh, I know when it's starting. I know when it's ending. I know when I'm ready to drive. Cleaner. It's a lot cleaner. Like, I mean, even just how it falls off, like you were talking about, like as soon as that pump is off in, you know, in 10, 15 minutes, that person's going to be pretty clear. Whereas some of these other routes of administration, they're, they're not as uh, like straightforward. And so it can be different every time. Yeah. I think the other thing, too, is the idea of doing it at home. You know, people with trauma, sometimes things related to their trauma might come up. Um, you know, so having that, you know, we're talking about like the support team is, yeah. you know, being home alone. I, I know for some of my patients, I, I could see that being really problematic. Yes, absolutely. And then, I mean, we haven't talked any about like monitoring or like what can kind of go wrong. What are the things that that are, you know, we talked a lot about it being yeah. safe, but Hypertension is, you know, during the treatment is common. Um, we do expect transient increases in blood pressure, but, um, and then we, mon- we monitor that during the clinic. So again, you know, that sort yeah. of thing is not being done at home really. And there's medications that you give, that you, you can give um, yep. if if the blood pressure is too high or you can slow you, slow it down. Or... Right, it's very, man- that, and that's the beauty of IV as well. Oral, if it's in, it's in. And if your blood pressure starts to go up in your home, I mean, there's not much, you know, um, you can do there, I guess. But if you're in a clinic, you've got an IV, like you said, you could take your pump off, you could give a little bit of blood pressure medicine through the IV and very quickly address any issues. Yep, absolutely. Some people get nauseated. So some people get premedicated with Zofran prior to uh, their infusion. Not everybody, but some people do. And so those are all things that can be managed in a more clinical setting with an actual practitioner who is there with you, (laughs) who can do all of that stuff for you. 
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Now, I'm sure there's people who are listening to the podcast who say, oh, you know, when I was a kid, I used to do special K, as they called it. I remember when I was a teenager, that's what people used to call ketamine. And they would talk about things like a K-hole. And they're like, oh my gosh, no, I'll never do ketamine again. Because one time when I was 16 years old, I ended up in a K-hole. Do you want to talk a little bit about what a K-hole might be? (laughs) So there are these different, you know, we've alluded to this without like really explaining it, but there's sort of these different levels of dissociation that people get with ketamine. And it's very dependent on the dose and also just like how you get it. So very, very low dose given really slowly is kind of like a few glasses of wine, I think most people would say. A little deeper is more of that dissociated state kind of feeling like you're floating. You might feel like you're somewhere else, seeing colors. You can go too far where you sort of don't know that you exist. That's basically kind of a K-hole. And you feel like, usually people say they feel like they're a speck in the universe or um, and they can't move. And it can be very scary for patients. When we're talking about, you know, using special K versus like how we would use it IV in a clinic, again, usually really much larger doses when used recreationally. And my understanding is like, I think normally it's snorted. So it's like, Mm -hmm. again, this like high dose all at once. So, you know, the amount I might use like a vial that I could probably treat maybe six patients with or so one person would probably snort two of those vials. So like what I would give 12 patients in clinic, they would get all at once. And so it's very different. And and obviously, when you're snorting something, you know, you're talking about the experience being predictable with IV. And obviously, in something like this, not going to be very predictable. But if you are giving this like high dose all at once, of course, your chances of having something like a K-hole is, um, is higher. But it can be really scary for people. Um, Definitely not our intention when we're using it with IV can happen. But it's definitely not our intention. Yeah, it's I think it's it's a lot less likely and also a lot easier to reverse uh, reverse and pull pull people out of um pretty quickly. Uh I've had people kind of raise a hand when they get uncomfortable or that you know they've gotten into a place where and then I can just slow things down. I just I I slow the infusion down. Sometimes I've stopped it and that has usually been uh, reported by the patients as being a positive experience. They're like, yeah, I started to feel a little uncomfortable. I raised my hand and I could feel the shift. I felt that there was a change in the experience I was having. And to what you said, if you are snorting something up your nose, um, some of that is going to go down. You're going to swallow some of it because it's going to go down the back of your throat. Anybody who's ever had a cold or post-nasal drip knows that you can swallow. (laughs) And so there's definitely that can be a delayed reaction. It can come up a little bit later where it feels very prolonged because of the whole, it's the first pass metabolism thing. So I think there's also the issue of when you buy something off the street that it's not pure ketamine, like, and you don't really know what else is in it, right? Yeah. So yeah, let's let's not disregard um, the fact that we have a major issue um, with things like fentanyl. So you do not want to just be buying things off the street from random people uh, that you do not know and um, ingesting them because we do not know what they are made up of. And fentanyl is a, a very real risk in, in today's culture. So even more reason to find a reputable clinician <laughs> and physician who is providing this type of care. So talking about going rogue, um, <laughs> that is the classic example of Matthew Perry. 
he was very forthcoming about the fact that he struggled with addiction for a very, very long time and also was using ketamine as a as a therapy for possibly was for mental health. And they found very large quantities of it in his system upon autopsy, uh, which likely, very likely, because we just talked about how fast the body metabolizes ketamine when it's given IV. And we know based on what they talked about in the news that he had had, I think it was about a week prior. I think a week and a half or so. A week and a half or so prior, he had had an actual ketamine infusion by a clinician and that then he died about a week and a half later with a large amount of ketamine in his system, which I think we can probably deduce was something that he he had taken on his own in some kind of form. Yeah, it's, I mean, obviously such a, tragic story. I think a couple of things that come to mind, though, thinking about his case in particular, you know, I've had I've done a, a lot of like education around this has obviously come up a lot in the news. And so did a lot of we did a lot of interviews and stuff around this. But with IV, the blood level is about 100, 200 nanograms per mil of ketamine. He had 3,500 nanograms per mil of ketamine, right? So I mean, we're talking a lot, 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 lot more. And he was in a body of water. So the, you know, we talked about the safety profile of it, even though that is a very high dose, had he taken that high dose and he was in his bed, probably would K-hole and wake up a couple hours later, most right. likely. Um, so if you do anything that knocks you out in a body of water, drink too much tequila and pass out, I mean, you're going to drown. So what right. probably happened is he lost consciousness and he drowned. Yes. Yes. I had this conversation with a lot of people because when I saw it hit the news, I cringed, to be honest. I was like, oh, God, I was like, this is the last thing that we need for those of us in this community where we have seen it help so many people and really be utilized as a way of preventing suicide and and such. And to see this come out in the news and say that he died from the acute effects of ketamine. Exactly. The headlines were so sensationalized. Oh, it, it, it drove me nuts because any amount of anything right. taken to that excess while sitting in a, a hot body of water, by the way. Um, so you're sitting in a, in a jacuzzi. And so that's, it's, uh, the temperatures are high. That's going to throw off a lot of things. And then you take something that, you know, can be dissociative and, and have a sedative effect. Yeah. You're, you're going to drown. Right. Uh, so I think that it's really, really important for nurses who are listening to this podcast because nurses are educators. That's our job. Our job is to educate the public anytime we are at the bedside. And a lot of times we get asked questions about things like this. We, it may not even be because the patient is having ketamine or anything like that. They could just be in the hospital and say, hey, what do you think about the whole Matthew Perry thing? Or what do you think about ketamine? And it's important for nurses to be educated about this, not to resort back to their 16-year-old self that may have some experience with special K or that kind of level of information, but to have real strong information from reliable sources like yourself and and from others like in ASKP3, like that you can go places where the information is reliable and then you can educate your patients. About it's us. so important to not like throw the baby out with bathwater on this kind of thing, because, you know, as we've been talking about anesthesia versus mental health treatment versus abuse, those are all three very, very different scenarios in terms of how it's absorbed, how it's administered, right? They're like, they're all very different. And understanding the like subtlety of those differences is is so important. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so what would you say is your major concern kind of on the heels of all of this? What is your major concern with just maintaining uh, access to this type of therapy and just 
what you could see as potentially happening if things are not regulated in a in in the right way, um, so that the misuse of it does not affect the fair use of it and the and that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, one thing that is challenging with this particular field is there's no one specialty that owns it. So no residency program is teaching their residents how to do this really, right? So um, right now, psychiatrists, anesthesiologists, ER doctors, family medicine doctors, like, right, there's all sorts of different providers that are offering it, CRNAs, um, there's, there's a whole variety. And that has that makes it challenging because there aren't a specific set of guidelines necessarily either. So this is something ASKP actually created very recently a faculty. What we did was we took um, people in the community that we knew uh, that had been practicing with a high level of integrity for a period, a long period of time. They were well regarded in their community and we invited them to basically be kind of a think tank. Um, and one of the projects that that group is working on is to create a set of standards and guidelines. So I think one of the reasons I helped with um, starting ASKP is I was so blown away by this treatment and knew it was so valuable, but it was so vulnerable and it needed protection. And if you don't create a set of guidelines and you don't draw the line in the sand, then how can you say these people are doing it right and these people are on the other side. And so I think the key really is going to be to create not, you know, we have actually created a set of guidelines that are on our website, but I think something broader than that, that's published, that's accepted by all the different specialties, people who are practicing this saying, this is the standard of care. Um, and this is really how it needs to be followed. And, but it's, it is again, one of those situations where I think we have to regulate ourselves um, and we don't want people who don't understand the treatment um, to come in and, and try to create those guidelines because it, it is a very different way of using the medication um, with a lot of with a lot of nuance. Yeah, and and I think that any time there's a certain level of profitability on a type of therapy, it can become a little bit the wild west, right? And it's tough because the medication itself is really not that expensive. Right. It's it's relatively affordable. And so that's not really where the cost lies. Um, the cost is really in the more of the service, the overhead, the liability, uh, the insurance that the, the practitioner has to carry, their, their time. I mean... I, just to go to a therapist these days, or at least a really good therapist, you're, you're looking at $200, you know, just to go see a therapist. And that's not including the overhead necessarily that you have to have when you are administering a drug. Exactly. Like, like ketamine. And where that gets like gray, like you're saying, it's, for most people, it's a cash pay service. Um, there are places that are able to bill some parts of it through insurance. But for the most part, there's not like a prior authorization process or something. Um, there is with Spravato, but not for IV. And because of that, you do have clinics that kind of promote it as like snake oil, right? And that's, again, where that gets a little dicey. Yeah, yeah. I think that the other reason why you really do have to have I think we have a responsibility to protect the public and, and to make things accessible for them. I think socioeconomically, uh, it's, it's important to be able to have access to these types of medications and sliding scales and, and all of those, those things. And, and that's really only going to happen uh, if there's certain types of regulatory practice that's put into place because right now I, I hear of some practitioners that are like, well, we charge $1,000 for a dose of ketamine and some people are charging $500 or $600 for a ketamine infusion. And maybe the people who are doing it for $500 or $600 are providing this kind of full service. There's integration. There's all this, you know, there's therapy. There's all this great onboarding that's being done and, and monitoring all of that. And 
someone else is doing it and charging a thousand dollars and they're sticking you in a room and no one's in there and and maybe you did a little checkoff sheet before you went in the room and that's it and and no one told you what it was going to be like and no. exactly right so there's so, no again that's up that's like standard of care and I think also the other thing that's important to note when we talk about all of this is there actually is a really large body of published literature around ketamine with regards to safety and efficacy and what conditions they've they've studied to see efficacy with. Um, so the first paper that mentioned ketamine being helpful for depression, I believe, was in 1999. And so, it, I mean, it was quite a while ago. And then in the early 2000s, there were lots of um, kind of single infusion efficacy type of studies um, and safety and tolerability. Um, so there, there is a real body of, of research around this. And then, of course, we have an FDA approved version. So to have gotten the FDA approval, there's those pretty rigorous studies as well. So yeah. we are talking about not, I think it's important to say that because I think sometimes people think this is like, totally alternative type medicine. And I don't think of it that way. I really think of it as like, this has a very real body of evidence. Um, I think that's really important, but it needs to be, you know, practiced within the, that set of, you know, guidelines that says these are the things that it's helpful for. Yep. I'm, I'm really, really excited about the work that ASKP3 is doing and, um, and just grateful for being in, included in the process with you guys, and, and thank you for for bringing me into into the fold. I think that this is kind of the the cornerstone of what is what is needed, so that we can keep this available to the public, to people who who do need it, and hopefully be able to get other forms <laughs> FDA approved. Uh, so that it is, you know, something that can maybe someday be covered by some level of insurance and that it's not just available to people who have thousands of dollars to spend. Uh, it's personally, it's really important to me that this becomes uh, available to, to the masses because I do think that it's very, it's showing so much promise in the area of mental health. And we need that. We need now more than ever. Absolutely. You know, that's the other thing too, that I find myself talking about a lot. Back when I was in med school, which was a while ago, um, they had published a very large study looking at, it's called Stardee, and they what it showed was that after someone had had two antidepressant trials, their chances of responding to a third was only 14%. And so I think that just highlight, and then with each trial, it got lower. So if you had tried three antidepressants, your chances of responding were like 7%. And yet the practice in psychiatry has been to continue to just give oral antidepressant after oral antidepressant, even though after several trials down the road, it's low single digits, so that person's going to get better. And so now we have other options that are helping patients who wouldn't otherwise probably respond to anything. Yeah, so I yeah. think not only is this such a great option, but there's like such a dire need within the field for better treatments. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad you're at the helm. And again, so grateful for ASKP3. Tell us where people can go to find your organization and learn more about what you're doing. Yeah, so ASKP3.org. Um, so we have a patient portal on there that you could send your patients to to get, like you were saying, reliable information. So that was put together by um, doctors as well as patients. Um, and so that's a good set of information that you can always direct to there. We have lots of articles online. Um, as well. Um, nurses can join the organization as members. Um, we want to start doing some more specific training that it's geared toward nurses. It's been amazing to meet Kara. It's like open a whole set of new um, thoughts and possibilities for us. Uh, we're so we're excited like to be working together more in that way. Um, and then we do an annual conference every year, which is amazing. And Kara, um, that's when she was in Austin. We had our conference last month. And so it's kind of 
all things latest and greatest that we know research-wise um, ketamine, but it's also just a fantastic networking opportunity, meeting other people in the space. So that's always um, an amazing event to to attend if this is a, a field that you're interested in. Yes. I, I I think that was what maybe one of the first things I said to you when I met you at the ASKP3 annual conference is I was I, I looked around and I thought we should have like 200 or 300 nurses here at this event because nurses are so passionate about doing this type of work and we need to get this out to more people and they will spread the word as well. And uh, so I know I was just kind of mind blown when we had that conversation. I was like, oh, my gosh, you're so right. Like, that's what we need to do. Yes. Well, this is the first opportunity. We're getting you out here on Nurse.Podcast so all of our incredible listeners can learn more about ketamine therapy and the benefits of that and be able to educate the public and and their colleagues. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was exciting to do this. Well, thank you for making yourself available. I know we pulled you in kind of last minute, but uh, we we really are so grateful that you you jumped on with us and, and we were able to shed a little light, especially in light of everything that has hit the news. So thank you so much. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. You too. All right. Talk to you soon. If you are a nurse or nursing student who enjoyed this episode, don't forget to join us on the Nurse.com app, where you can find the Nurse.Discussion Group, a place where we dissect each episode in detail and delve deeper into today's topics. Nurse Dot is a Nurse.com original podcast series. Production, music, and sound editing by Don Lunsford. Production coordination by Rhea Wade. Additional editing by John Wells. Thank you to all the listeners for tuning in to the Nurse Dot Podcast. Until next time, keep spreading the love and the care. <laughs>